And tonight we're in Genesis 44, as I mentioned. We're going to continue the story of Joseph. And the title I'm going to use tonight for our chapter is The Silver Cup. The Silver Cup. So Genesis 44 is where we are. And let's go ahead and pray one more time. Father, as we have gathered in your name tonight, thank you for this building that you've given to us, Lord. Thank you for the people of God. The church is not a building. It's really the building that you are creating, which is in people. And you are creating your body. And you're putting us into your body piece by piece. And you have special gifts that have been mentioned earlier. Each one of us have been given a gift or a gift mix to utilize, to engage for the glory of the head, the glory of the, the head of the body, which is Jesus Christ. And Father, um, as we look at our transformation tonight, as we look at how you transform us from one degree of glory to another, as we're not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds I pray that you would do a mighty work tonight. I pray that whatever weights we've carried in here, whatever burdens we have, or whatever things we need to hear tonight, would all be laid at your feet, and you'd open up our ears and our hearts to your word and to your spirit. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now, as we've looked at the story of Joseph, we know the brothers sold him into slavery, and uh, Joseph had been elevated now to the viceroy, basically, of Egypt, or the prime minister of Egypt, the brothers came because there was a famine in the land and they came to Joseph. Unbeknownst to them, it was Joseph and he was in the Egyptian garb and he wasn't known to them. And they came and they bowed before him and he supplied grain to the brothers. But when he did, remember that he made some charges. He recognized them, they didn't recognize him and he accused them of being spies. He said, you've come to spy out the unprotected parts of the land and and so forth. And they said, no, 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 no. And they told their family story a little bit. And, and finally, they went off. And when they left the first time, after uh, everything that they went through, one of the things that happened was that they discovered that the money was still in their sacks. And they were a little startled by all of this. And they sensed that God was working in, in all that was going on. They went home. And uh, they told the story to their father about all that had gone on. If you want to just take a peek back at uh, Genesis 42, look at verse 21. Genesis 42:21. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. Notice that they're going to sense God in the whole thing. Reuben answered and said, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy? You would not listen. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Skip down to Genesis 42, verse 28. 42:28 says, Then he said to his brothers, My money has been returned, and behold, it is even in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Skip ahead to Genesis 43. Look at verse 14. And may God Almighty, this is now when Jacob is going to allow them to go back for the second time. God Almighty is El Shaddai. It means he's the God who is the creator and controller of life. May he grant you compassion in the sight of this man or of the man, that he may release to you your other brother, Simeon, and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now what's been happening is that the brothers are sensing that God is working and even Jacob is changing because Jacob now says, okay, if I have to let go of my children and even be bereaved of, of my children, then so be it. And we drew the parallel to the book of Esther. If I perish, then I 
perish. There are many people learning lessons during this 20 plus year period of time. God is working in multiple people's lives on multiple levels. And that's always what God's up to, by the way. If I called each of you up here to share a story like Niran just shared, or Logan shares, each of you would have a story about how God is working in your life. Isn't it amazing? And then we're often blown away about the layers that He works in our lives, and the detail, and the little things that we need to hear, that we hear just at the right time. And that blows us away, but God's doing that all over the planet. Isn't that amazing? We have an amazing God. He has amazing power. And what drives what He does is His love for His people. One of the things that God is up to, just uh, to be reminded of this, is He is in the transformation business. He is transforming you and I into the image of His Son. He is conforming us, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, from one degree of glory to another, we are encouraged in Romans 12, not to be conformed to this world, but to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are going through a metamorphosis, is where this language comes from. This is the Greek idea, from the Greek language. God is transforming us. He is changing us. He is in the chiseling and transforming business. And one of the main ways that He transforms His people is through, are you all ready? Buckle your seatbelt. Is through trials. Transformation comes through trials. Oh, I even hate saying it. Because when I say it, I know it's true, but it doesn't mean that it's without pain. It doesn't mean that the chiseling process is not difficult and hot and hard. I mean, this is all the stuff that God does. And for the last 20 plus years, God has been working in the conscience of the brothers. And Joseph has been putting through them through the paces or the tests because he wants to see on a human level if they've really changed. If they feel bad for what they've done to him. If their hearts have uh, changed at all. And you know, when we look at the book of James and we look at what Paul says, some of the stuff that James says, he, he says basically, you can say you have faith, but show me your faith by your works. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that James came from the show me state and whatever state that is. And anyway, that means, look, people aren't going to really know you're a Christian unless your behavior follows your confession. Amen? You know, people often say talk is cheap, right? So we show who we are. One of the primary ways that we show who we are is by love. And what the brothers did was the opposite of love. They sold their brother into slavery and they did it because they were jealous of him. They did it because he was Papa's favorite. And we could blame Jacob and we could say, oh, he was wrong to show favoritism and that's always a problem. But we do know this. We know that the brothers could have realized that one of the reasons that he showed favoritism is because Joseph was the son of Rachel. And Rachel was uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob's wife, Rachel. That was his true love. So Joseph came from that relationship. So there was something special going on there with Joseph and Benjamin. Now, Here's what's happened. So they've gone back to Egypt now and they get, in, they get an invitation into the prime minister's house and they're all nervous, remember? Oh no, what's going to happen? They're gonna, they're gonna, there's people waiting in the closet. They're going to jump us. They're going to steal our donkeys. We're in for, right? 
But then all of a sudden they get served a meal. And all of a sudden the steward is saying, Oh, peace to you. How's it going, man? Sit down. And they start serving up the food. And Joseph, who they don't know it's Joseph yet, is there and he's eating with the Egyptians. But he even gives Benjamin, do you remember? Five extra pancakes. Loose translation of the Hebrew. Right? And they don't even mind. Hey, it's great. He's getting extra portions. And they're seated from the oldest to the youngest. And they're stunned. This guy's treating us so nicely. And uh, Kurt, you pointed out, and I think it was a good point that you made, that chapter 43 starts with famine and it ends with feasting. That's a great way to kind of bookend the chapter. And all of a sudden they have this great night and they're having plenty of food and, and everything's great. And their fears dissipate and the morning light rises and they saddle up the donkeys and they're going to go home. And here's how the story begins. Then he, Joseph 44.1, commanded his steward saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So now Joseph is instructing his steward and he's saying, okay, I want you to give them all that they can carry and even give them their money back. And then he says, and put the silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, that's Benjamin, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. So they with their donkeys. So now they woke up after this night of feasting, had probably a nice comfortable night's sleep, and they got up at first light, and they had to be feeling pretty good about themselves. Maybe they even congratulated themselves. Isn't this awesome? <laughs> we, know the, we know the prime minister of Egypt. He likes us. Why does he like I don't know why he likes us. keeps asking about our family, right? We keep finding extra stuff in our bags. This is awesome, right? And so, they, as soon as it was light, the men went, were sent away. They now we know how they travel, right? They, they, they got on their beasts of burden or their donkeys, but something had happened. And that is that Joseph instructed the steward to put the silver cup in the sack of Benjamin. Silver is an interesting reference because silver it comes up in the selling of Joseph into slavery. He was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And it seems like everything that Joseph has done Making them, accusing them of being spies, letting them spend three days in prison, keeping one of their brothers behind in prison. Um, all that's happened, he is taking them through, or as one writer put it, reconstituting what they did to him. And now he puts the silver cup in the sack of Joseph. I started thinking about this concept of silver and the, you know, what the meaning may be, and at least one of the applications for us. And here's what Malachi three three says. It says, God will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. That's Malachi 3, verse 3. We all know about the silversmith, right? And the silversmith puts the vessel into the fire and the dross gets what? Scraped off that vessel. And there's been stories that have gone around the church for quite some time and they've been this kind of story that the silversmith will tell people that he knows that he's, fil- he's finished with that vessel when he can see what? His own reflection in it. And so God is in the, uh, the scraping of the dross business. And we all have our share of dross. Amen? 
Now that's not the language we typically use. We say rough edges. I got some rough edges, man. We we know. <laughs> right? And God scrapes and he scrapes and he scrapes. And all of a sudden this silver cup takes center stage. The book of Proverbs brings up some of this. I want you to turn for a second. Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. Look at verse 21 with me. So you have the Psalms and the Proverbs. Proverbs 27. Look at verse 21. It says these words. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. Now a crucible, my understanding is, that's kind of the pot where they put the the vessel in and it's got the the fire. And, And it says the crucible is for silver, the furnace for gold, and a man is tested by the praise accorded him. Now here's what this means. Sometimes we think that testing comes in the difficult times of life, traffic and arguments with people and that kind of thing, and that's true. But you're also often tested by the praise that you get. When someone gives you a compliment, amen? They might say to you, oh, you do one, oh, you look great, oh, and you, oh, thank you very much, uh, right? And if you get an inflated head when you get, you know, praise, you've got to kind of watch out for that. A man is tested by that. Proverbs 17.3 says, The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Um, look at verse 22. It says, though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. It seems like you know you can beat a fool up and kind of smack him around, metaphorically speaking, and he doesn't seem to get it. Then it says, know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds. Look, life is a series of lessons. And one of the things that we realize about God is that God is always putting us through tests. He puts us in the crucibles of life. Why? To shape us. To mold us. To scrape the edges, rough edges off of us. And to put His image more deeply into us so that we will shine more for God. In the last 20 plus years, that's what God's really been doing in the conscience of the brothers. Joseph's been getting the favor of God and God's been working on Joseph, he's been working on Jacob, and he's been working on the brothers as well. And it comes out in this story that they've been thinking about what they've done. They've been thinking about the wrong that they did to to their brother. They've been thinking about when he was crying out to them and how they did not hear his cries but still sold him into slavery. Back to Genesis 44. And so Joseph has been setting up his own series of tests and I would say largely guided by God to see where the brothers' hearts are, and they need to see where their hearts are. Sometimes when we're going through a test, it's not, this is always true because God doesn't need to learn anything, but oftentimes it's for us to see where we're at. It's a good way to measure where you're at. Are you responding differently today than you did 10 years ago? Do you respond differently today to crisis and trial? Has God showed up enough times in your faith journey where you can say, the next time this happens, I'm going to calm down a little bit. I'm not going to freak out and stress out as much. Well, here's here's where the testing comes. So this is 44.4 back in Genesis. They had just gone out of the city, so off on the donkeys they go. They're 
bellies are filled, they're feeling good, they got grain in their bags. They were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them what I have say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? So he, he tells them to overtake them. He tells them, I'm going to give you the speech. Here's what I want you to say. Why have you repaid evil for good? Now, each time that you see Joseph setting something up, it's kind of like you've got to ask a question. Does this, does this intersect to how Joseph felt and what they did to him? And I think it's true. I think Joseph, uh, when he looked at what his brothers did to him, he was thinking, why did they repay good for evil for good? Why, what was it that they found in me that was so bad? And they had a perspective about Joseph that got, I think, worse and worse as they talked. And some of it was centered around Joseph's cool coat of many colors. Remember that? They didn't like that so much. And then they said, then they didn't like his dreams. Remember over uh, Cheerios one morning and he shared the dreams, right? Your, your, your grain bowed down to mine, that kind of thing. They didn't like that. And then they said, then he came, here comes that dreamer, right? He had given a not so good report about them to his dad. He had checked on them in the field and and had not given a real positive report. But let me ask you this question, just thinking about what you know about Joseph. Do you think what he reported to his dad was true? I think probably we could assume it was. I think he was probably honest with his dad. Uh, their dad, they're kind of messing around a little bit. They're not really working too hard. Joseph seems to be an honest man, but they didn't appreciate his honesty. you have anybody around you who doesn't really appreciate your honesty? You give honest reports about things... That really cramps some people's style when you're honest, right? Not, not, you know, a lot of how the world works is not in honesty. And so, is not this the one from uh, which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? We'll come back to that. This is the speech now that Joseph's giving to the steward. It hasn't happened yet. You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them, verse 6. Now it happens. He chases them down and spoke these words to them. He gave the speech in verses 4 and 5. And he said these words. He says, Why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you taken the silver cup that belongs to my master? He gave the speech and it had to shock them because they were cruising back home feeling good and all of a sudden they get run down. And I would imagine it was the steward along with probably some armed forces from Egypt just in case there was problems with the brothers. And they chased him down and all of a sudden he spoke the speech. And they said to him, verse 7, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Man, you were a cool dude when we were in the house before. You were saying, Shalom, cool, God's with you. I know you gave the money, I gave it back to you. Your Lord's with you, everything's cool. What's changed? What's going on? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Excellent logic. Thieves... Do not voluntarily return stolen items, at least as far as I know. <laughs> right? They, they were kind of like, come on, Mr. Stewart. I mean, we brought back the money and it turned out that you gave us the money on purpose. If we were thieves, we wouldn't have done that. We have a go good thing going on here. The big guy, your boss, seems to like us. We had dinner, we hung out together, we had some laughs. We brought your silver back. You blessed us. What's going on with these accusations? Verse 9. With whomever of your servants it is found, now look at this, 
let him die. They're pretty confident that nobody's taken anything wrong. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you're pretty confident about something and you make, make a declaration that you come to regret? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. You know, there, there are uh, people, and I think well-meaning, sometimes this happens to young Christians. Young Christians are trying to break old patterns. So they make a declaration which turns into an oath. Okay, God, uh, I'm tired of going back to that old sin, so here's what I'm going to do. If I do that again next weekend, I will give all my vehicles away to charity. And then, they're in line next weekend. And then they look at their car. And they say, oh no, what have I done? Can I just make a biblical recommendation? Don't make any oaths like that. You don't need to do that. Just let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And when you make a dumb mistake, repent of it quickly, and get back on track. But don't start making declarations up to the heavens about children or vehicles. (laughs) And he said, okay, verse 10, let it be according to your words. The guy who has the silver cup will die and the rest of us will be your slaves. That's how confident we are. Okay, said the steward. Now the steward knows something they don't know, right? He with whom it is found shall be my slave. Now he kind of changes it. You guys said he would die. But I'll tell you what, the one in whom the silver cup is found, he'll be my slave. The rest of you shall be innocent. But they weren't innocent, were they? They were guilty. They weren't guilty of stealing the silver cup. That was a plant. This was a setup. We all know that. But they were guilty of something else. They had sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. They had elevated silver above his life. They had let jealousy rule the day. Then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, verse 11, and each man opened his sack. They were quick to want to show their innocence. They were hasty to prove the steward's accusation was wrong, so they lowered their bags to the ground, opened them up for inspection, and he searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And we'll get to the end of the verse in a moment, but they started with Reuben's bag. Reuben was the firstborn. The steward found nothing. Reuben probably stood up, crossed his arms, and went, See? I told you. Then, next was the ex-con Simeon. He had just gotten out of prison, so if anybody stole it, it was probably Simeon, right? Ex-convict and all. (laughs) Well, they opened his bag, and nada. Then they went to Levi. Nothing. To Judah. Nothing. They came to Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Again, there was nothing. No silver cup in here. All eight stood frowning righteously, says one writer. Next was Issachar and Zebulun, no silver cup. Ten of the eleven brothers sitting there, maybe frowning a little bit. Can you believe this guy? I don't know. You ever been in a situation like that? Can't believe they would have accused me of that. Yeah. But then they opened the sack of Benjamin. And inside the youngest sack was a shiny object. I'm sure when the sun hit it, they had to be horrified. Because this was the kid that dad didn't want to let go. This was the other son that he had remaining from 
the, his true love, Rachel, and he released him. He said, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. And all of a sudden now the silver cup is in the bag of the youngest. The last bag searched belonged to Benjamin. And the silver cup was inside. It is when the cup is found in Benjamin's sack, says F.B. Meyer, that he too is brought to the feet of Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people that don't quite understand that we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. Maybe for Benjamin, he was thinking, man, I, I'm, the, I'm the youngest. I'm, I'm the one that dad, you know, his life is attached to mine. And sometimes we think, oh, you know, there's certain people that may not need Jesus. They're pretty good people. Uh-uh. The Bible says we, are, we have all sinned. We all, what? Fall short of the glory of God. We are all under the penalty of sin. And by the way, that Greek word there is very literal. The picture is we're all under the weight of sin and that weight must be lifted off of us. And when that silver cup is pulled out of Benjamin's sack, it shows that he needs mercy. Whatever the cause may be. True transformation, brothers and sisters, can only come in your life when you realize you need the grace of God. There's a lot of people walking around our city tonight. They don't understand their need for the grace of God because they haven't been confronted with their sin yet. And that's why when you're sharing the Gospel, you have to show people what sin is. I'm not saying you have to beat them over the head. But if you just throw out a few commandments to people, I think they'll realize they've sinned. For example, have you ever lied before? If someone says no, they just broke a commandment, now you can share the Gospel with them, right? Um, there, you, you know the commandments, right? Adultery can be committed in your heart. Murder can be committed in your heart. Uh, one writer says, our hearts are like an idol-making factory. We've all broken all ten of the commandments. Not once, but over and over and over again. we failed to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. we failed to love our neighbor, how? As ourselves. We all are under the weight of that law. That's why Jesus came. And so the brothers, when they realized that it was in the sack of Benjamin, they tore their clothes, 13. This is a Jewish expression of mourning and anguish and even anger. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. They tore their clothes because they were staggered by what had happened. By the way, when Joseph, when they came back and reported what had happened to Joseph and Dad thought he had been eaten by a wild animal, he was the only one who tore his clothes that day. Now all the brothers tore their clothes. They were all in anguish about what had happened. And here's the insight. They were changing. They were changing. You see, they could have at that moment said, Oh well, Benjamin, sorry. I know your, your name means son of my right hand and you're this on, your honored son, but you know, uh, silver cups in your sack. Too bad, boy. But they all are anguished because they know what this means. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, so they had to get back on the donkeys, they had to go back to Egypt, 14. He was still there. And they fell to the ground before him. By the way, this is the third time they have fallen to the ground before Joseph in fulfillment of his dream. <laughs> but they don't realize it yet. So if you want to mark this down, they bow before him in chapter 42, verse 6, chapter 43, verse 26, and I think another verse there, 28. And they fall to the ground here in chapter 44, verse 14. They've bowed three times 
Do you think maybe on the third time as you're bowing before this mysterious Egyptian ruler who keeps asking about your family, you might have had one of those aha moments like, wait a minute, this is the dream that Joseph had. But they're too caught up in everything that's going on. And so they fall to the ground before him. The the NIV says they threw themselves to the ground before him. They all know what this means. Did the brothers put it together yet? Could they see Joseph's dreams as he surely had seen? You know, when he was watching them on the ground, I'm sure he was thinking of his dreams. Were they thinking? Sometimes we are blind to what is right in front of us. Have you ever looked past something that's so obvious and you look back later and you're like, how did I miss that? But sometimes we're so caught up in our stuff or what this moment means to me, like, oh no, what does this mean now? I'm going to be mopping for the next 40 years. And they miss the fact that God was trying to say something very clear. That God was in control. And so... Here they are, escorted back now to the house of the steward. Now their fears are fully realized and justified. Now they're like, what's going to happen to us? They collectively fell before Joseph to the ground and pleaded without a word. Have you ever been there where you're just speechless? Like, I'm not even going to try to come up with an argument right now. Even though they probably could have. There was no silver cup. Benjamin's not that kind of guy. I promise you, you're a nice guy, right? you Nothing. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Verse 15. Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? Now, let's pause for a second. Divination is forbidden later in Israel as a pagan custom. You can write down Leviticus 19.26 and Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. When someone is involved in... Div- uh, I can say the word. Divination. It means that they are trying to get to information that is occluded. That's why the word is often called the occult. The occult is people who are trying to get behind the veil and get information about events that happened in the past, the present, or the future. So they may go to a seance, they may go to a medium. Saul went to a medium, remember, and God allowed some things that happened, and I believe that legitimately was Samuel that came up, the prophet in that case. But there are people who dabble in things that they have no business dabbling in. Why does Joseph say this? Does he actually involve himself in divination? We don't know for sure. But I'll tell you this, Joseph has gotten information about the future through his dreams. And we do know that he can interpret dreams. And whether or not he just said this because he was trying to convince the brothers that he had inside information or he really did this, I I would venture to say, here's my speculation. I don't think he was involved in pagan practices. But I think it was a way for him to say, hey, guess what? I have information that you don't have. So don't you you understand who you're messing with right now is kind of the idea. Joseph had seen the future in his dreams, but they would not believe him. So Judah speaks up. Judah, who's been taking a leadership position as we've watched the last few chapters unfold, he said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? 
And then notice this. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now, you've got to love what Judah says here. Judah says, there's nothing I can really say. I'm not going to try to give you a laundry list of justifications which we're all pretty good at, even though he may have. Here's what I'm going to say. God has found us out. Now, doesn't that reveal the conscience of the, this group? And do you know, the one who recommended that Joseph would be sold into slavery was Judah. Judah was the one way back when they were thinking about killing Joseph who said, hey, why should we kill him? We can get money for him and sold him into slavery. Now some scholars say Judah did that to protect Joseph, but we don't know if that's the case. He just said, hey, we can get something for him and he is after all our flesh and blood and it was Judah who had sold Joseph into slavery. How many nights do you think he revisited that? How many times do you think he replayed that? And now there's a silver cup. And all of a sudden, he's become a leader. And what he doesn't know at this point is that the lion of the tribe of Judah is going to come from his very loins. The one who will save us all. And he says, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. We're guilty. And the reason that this is all happening is because we did something terrible. And God is exposing us. Numbers 32.23 says, But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. You know, there's, there's some incredible stories about people who have committed crimes and things all of a sudden come up. Uh, I even heard a story, this was some, from some years ago, where there was a man who murdered somebody he put the body in the back of his car and left a trail of blood of the victim all the way to his front door. Now that's a pretty open and shut case. But you know what? Our sin finds us out because God knows everything. But here's the other thing. It's because we have a conscience. God has written His law on our hearts and our conscience bears witness to His law. You don't need the Ten Commandments to know the essence of the law. In fact, Gentiles respond to what's been written. This is one of the reasons we know we're made in the image of God, by the way. and You you can write this down. Romans 2, 14 and 15. When you hear the word conscience, it's two words in Latin. Con means with and science means knowledge. And it means that every time you do something that's against the law of God written in your heart because you're made in the image of God. Your conscience bears witness to the wrong. That's why it radiates inside of you when you do something wrong. Now your conscience can become a bad barometer if you do enough wrong. You can sear your conscience as with a hot iron and it can become undependable after a time and not listening to it. But when your conscience is informed by the Word of God, you're especially sensitive And you're especially sensitive when it's informed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Can I get a witness? I mean, it's not just a little bell that goes off. For me, it's a... (laughs) Right? Okay, Lord. Right? Do you feel bad for the hockey goalie? Every time they score, that light goes off. There's nowhere to hide. Anyway. What do you do when your sin has found you out? 
Well, Judah's a good example here because Judah owns it. He doesn't try to justify anymore. Now, they've done, I'm sure, enough of that over the last 20 years and maybe, maybe, you're, maybe this fits with you. Maybe you've done a lot of justifying of your actions and then you've come to a point, and this is a point where all Christians have to come. In, in fact, I would say that this is a point that really often precedes conversion, true conversion, is to see your sin for what it is and stop making excuses for it. But it also can be uh, one of the things that we go through as believers as we mature. You know, It doesn't profit us to try to hide things from God because you can't hide anything from God. And so... When you see the language, God has found out the iniquity of your servants, look at middle of 16, I would say to Judah, no, he hasn't. He knew all along. He didn't just find this out. Oh, Gabriel, Michael, did you see? No, he already knows. Judah, this is a revelation for you, but not for God. Moy told a story some years ago, and I, I don't remember where he was, but Moy is a Christian artist that we used to have at the church many years ago. And he said he was in this village, and uh, there were he was ministering to two, uh, I think they were young teenage boys, and their mom had gotten angry with them and poured chlorine in their eyes and blinded both of them as a punishment. And you're like, and he was he was just devastated by this, and he was like. He said he started praying and it was something like this. Oh Lord, something needs to be done about this. Some, and the Lord spoke to Moy as he tells the story and says, oh, I don't know if you realize this, but I, I already knew about this place. Just because it's heavy on your heart doesn't mean I don't know these people's pain. But it's nice that you're feeling what I feel. It's nice that you're coming to get a sense of what I see every single day. Not, a, not just in one village. I see what happens all around the world. I see when that child doesn't get to share that story with somebody. I see what's going on. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves. What can we say? Both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Now, now look at Judah. What was the deal? First they said, okay, the one that has the cup dies and will become your slaves. And then the steward said, no, 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 no. Just the one that has the cup is the slave. And then Judah says, We'll all be your slaves. But he didn't have to. I mean, if you were in Judah's sandals right now, what would you say? Would you be trying to find a way out? Would you, be, would you say to the leader, oh, that Benjamin, you know, we've always known about him. He's had issues with silver cups for many, many years now. There's a whole collection of them. We don't even know where they came from. <laughs> and the Response was, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now Benjamin is the last remaining son of the favorite wife, Rachel. As far as dad knows, Joseph's dead. All he's got left is Benjamin. He's already said, I'm going to go down my gray hairs and all to the grave in sorrow if anything happens to Benjamin. That's why he hesitated to send him. Now he's released him and now Benjamin's the one with the silver cup. And what do you think Joseph is trying to do? He's trying to see if their hearts have changed. Because what they did is they got rid of Joseph 
And they got rid of Joseph because he was inconvenient to their lives. He tells on them when they're not working hard. He's got a cool coat that we don't have. Right? He's daddy's favorite. And it was convenient for them to say, he's a pain. Let's kill him. Oh no, we'll sell him off to slavery. We'll get rid of the inconvenience. Now, Benjamin has become inconvenient. Benjamin may cost me my liberty for the rest of my life. I don't go home again. This is what I'm thinking. I become an Egyptian slave. Or a slave in Egypt as a Hebrew. No, thank you. 20 years ago, they said, hey, for much lesser things, Joseph's a pain. He can go good riddance to you. He's a problem in my life. Now, my liberty is at stake. And Joseph is watching. They don't know it's Joseph. He's asking a question. Have they changed? Will they sacrifice the only remaining son now, my brother, for the sake of their convenience? Do you know? This is going to be hard to hear for some of you, but we need to hear it. There are people all over the landscape tonight that have sacrificed something near and dear to them for the sake of convenience. Because something was cramping their style, be it a spouse or a pregnancy. Oh, that's inconvenient. Oh, that's going to cost me something. So they, they decided to do something very foolish. And when I say this, I'm including myself. I've made my share of mistakes. Both as a non-Christian and even in the first few years of being a Christian. And here we are, you know, we, we have this test before them and, and the test is going to be, have you changed? Do you, do you talk a good game until the moment comes when it's going to cost you your freedom now if you step up for your brother? What are you going to do? Well, Joseph gives them an out. And, you know, maybe at first they were thinking, oh, no, 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 no. He, there's no way little bro stole this. But now they might be thinking, you know what? Maybe Benjamin did steal it. I mean, who knows? I mean, he's our little brother. We, we don't know everything about him. Maybe he's a thief. Can you, can you hear the justifications coming? People get, they get caught in a quandary. They have the lure of liberty, right? And they say, oh, well, the rationalizations and justifications start flying. Now, well, maybe, you know, all of a sudden... There's compromise. Did they sense what was going on? Would Benjamin become expendable? All of this takes them right back to Joseph and his dreams. The brothers wanted to be free of his dreams, his piety, his honesty. But you know, whenever you think that you're going to do something that becomes expedient for your life, it never works out the way the world tells you. The world says, oh, you can do that. This will be the quick fix for you and then you can just move on with your life. But have you noticed? It doesn't seem to work out that way. Have you noticed the commercials on television? And they don't really show you the morning after kind of stuff and the fallout that you have to deal with for a moment of pleasure. Everybody with me? You see, this is what's going on here. This is the test. This is the last test. But it's really the biggest test because Joseph wants to see, you going to do it again? Now the temptation was here again. 
And Judah approached him, and this was risky, approaching the prime minister of Egypt, and he said, Oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. Do not be angry with your servant. You are equal to Pharaoh. Now, he's going to recount the story. We'll move quickly through it. But he says, Now, my Lord, he says, My Lord, asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Now, he's just going to recap the story. He said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother. His father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set him, set my eyes on him. 22. But we said to my Lord, the, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless the youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up, to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. <laughs> you can see Joseph. Okay, yeah, 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 I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, uh, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. I know what I told you. Speed it along. And your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. The one that went out from me, and I said, surely... He is torn in pieces. By the way, this is probably the first time Joseph has ever heard this information. This is the first time he realizes that his dad concluded that he was probably killed by a wild animal. He hasn't known this for a couple of decades. So he's listening. I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, 29, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and sorrow. Now therefore, when I come uh, to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up with the lad's life, it will come about when he sees the lad is not with us, that he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Judah, I think, is doing something very insightful. He's trying to bring a little responsibility to the Egyptian ruler. He's kind of saying this, Hey, you know, this whole thing was your idea. <laughs> without, without saying it that way. He retells the story and says, you know, uh, you asked us, you asked about our family, it was your idea to bring this Benjamin. So, uh, giving him a little responsibility, right? For your servant became surety for the lad to my father. Look, I'm the pledge. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, 32, then let me bear the blame before my father. For how long? Forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brothers. This is Judah. He says, now, NIV, now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy. and Let the boy return with his brothers. Now, what do you think Joseph was feeling at this moment when he heard that Judah was now willing to take Benjamin's place? All of a sudden, Judah is a changed man. You know, Judah had some terrible sins in just a few chapters ago, right? He wasn't the most honor, honorable man, but he has changed. And he has made a statement here that's an excellent statement about the Gospel. Let me take the place of my guilty brother. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ paid what scholars call a vicarious atonement. What He did was He took the place of sinners. He died vicariously in our stead 
on the cross. He was treated as though He had committed my sins. He was treated as though He were the guilty party when I'm the guilty party. This is how we know what love is. This whole chapter is really about love and transformation. How can we say we belong to God? How can I say I love God when I don't love my brother? This is 1 John 4.18-21. It says, There is no fear in love. 1 John 4.18-21. Just write it down. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because what? He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, the one who loves God should love his brother also. So we're to be devoted to one another, Romans 12.10, in Philadelphia. Literally, the Greek there is brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia. And it comes out of Romans 12.1 and 2. A transformed life, metamorphosized, more into the image of Christ, will show the love of Christ to others. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for what? Our brothers. This is the test. And Joseph wants to know, have they grown in love? This is a a scholar of years past. He says, here was the eloquence of true love. Love so burningly manifest, so willing to take full responsibility before God. Love which though only uh, only of Jacob and Benjamin melted the heart of Joseph. Such love moved Moses to ask God to blot out his name in the book of life for the sake of his, his brethren. Such love prompted Paul to wish himself accursed of his brethren uh, for his brethren if they could be saved. Judah was transformed by divine love and he said, if I can use a line from Beauty and the Beast, take me instead. Remember the Beast's response to Bell? You! You would take his place? Yes! Says Bell. And she goes and serves the sentence. This is the story of the Gospel. And interestingly enough, it comes from a man whose name is Judah and the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And in Revelation 5, the the Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And the Bible paints this picture of the Gospel in the Old Testament. Where he says, For how shall I go up to my Father if the lad is not with me? Lest... I see the evil that would overtake my father. I cannot, I will not go back without him. I will rather die or be your servant. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he knew, and he always knew the penalty for our sin, said, yes, they are guilty, Father, but take me instead. This is the Gospel. This is what Jesus did for you and me. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but they will have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through Him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ took the wrath for us. And the fruit of the Spirit is... What? It's love. 
If you want to boil down your Christian life, and Paul says, oh, you could argue about spirituality, 